Welcome to the Trinity Grace Church Tribeca podcast. At Trinity Grace Church, our mission is to help New Yorkers grow in love by practicing the way of Jesus for the good of our city. If you're interested in Trinity Grace Church Tribeca, check out our website at tgctribeca.com where you can learn more about us and learn about ways that you can help support our church and this podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook to see and hear what's going on in our community. Thank you for joining us today and welcome grace and peace to you. Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. The gospel of our Lord. You may be seated. So I created my, my sermon this week, writing it, and then uh, had a wave of inspiration that ended up something looking something like this. So if you can, if you can uh, bear with me, I'm going to be trying to connect. Good gracious. I'm going to try to connect dots. You know what I may do to begin is uh, situate this where that doesn't happen again. And so, so how did Jesus know Zacchaeus' name? You ever ask that question as you think about this? There, there is a scene unfolding where Jesus is walking through the town Jericho, which was like, a pretty important place. It was kind of the, the Hamptons for Jerusalem. It was an oasis in the middle of the desert where people would get away from uh, the life of, of Jerusalem. Um, it was also a, a town where people from the east who were on pilgrimage into Jerusalem would stop. And so it was kind of this critical crossways of a, of a town with probably lots of people passing through on the course of a year. And Jesus himself finds himself passing through this town on his way to Jerusalem. And as a crowd emerges around him, there is a man who is seeking to see Jesus, deeply curious and deeply committed. Because when he cannot actually catch a glimpse the way he wants to, he climbs a tree in order to get a better view. And when Jesus sees him, he says, Zacchaeus, how did Jesus know his name? 
Was this a knowing gesture of divine omniscience? It was meant to sweep the crowds and maybe even Zacchaeus off of their feet? Or did Jesus perhaps have a vivid portrait of Zacchaeus painted for him through the dozens and dozens of conversations that he had had with people in that town? You see, when Jesus entered towns, one of his priorities was to connect with people. You see him over and over again in our Gospels, looking people in the eye, touching them, asking them questions. We can remember the question he asked the lady who came to him when he said, listen, what do you want me to do for you? We can think of the lines that were pouring out from the home where Jesus set up shop in Galilee, where all through the night people came with their problems, with their oppressions, with their sicknesses, And Jesus met them one by one, looking them each in the eye, and you know he had conversations. This was Jesus' pattern. And we can expect nothing short of this when he comes into Jericho. Now, I imagine in Jericho, as Jesus sits down to listen to the pain of the people, he begins to hear a recurring theme. It is, after all, the human instinct in the face of pain to find some sort of target to find some sort of source that we can point out and sort of lash our energy or our outrage or our disgust toward. It's what we call a scapegoat. And our scapegoats are rarely blameless, but they typically get a disproportionate amount of the blame and our energy. You can imagine Jesus sitting face to face with so many people and asking, how's it going? Not great, Jesus. I had to sell my property last month. I'm a tenant farmer now on the land that my father and my father's father have owned. And now I feel disgraced. And that wouldn't have been an uncommon story. But maybe Jesus in true therapist style sits back and he asks that therapeutic question. Say more about that. (laughs) Well... It's that darn Zacchaeus. I've been saving up to pay my taxes. They're brutal, but I know the terms, and I've got a family to care for. But when Zacchaeus' meathead collector came, the amount was more than I expected. A ripoff on top of a ripoff. And when I resisted the percentage, I was threatened. And I pleaded with him that if I met his number, that I would have no way to keep my property. I would have no choice but to sell it. And he laughed. He kept the threat solid. And so I had no choice. And now I live with the indignity of working as a hired hand on the land my father gave me. I make a terrible wage. I'll have nothing to pass on to my children. I see no way out of this financial situation. How am I doing? I'm angry. I'm depressed. I'm stuck. How do you think Jesus responded to that kind of thing? Maybe another person overheard that conversation and it started to get momentum. And he offers an enthusiastic story. My cousin was beat to an inch of his life last week. He refused to pay the outrageous rate. Later that night on the road, he was ambushed and left for dead by Zacchaeus' roadies. If it weren't for a Samaritan traveler, he'd be a dead man. 
for sure. Everyone lives in fear of this guy. He sits in his little house counting his money. I wish he'd come and try to collect money in person with me. He's a traitor, if you ask me. One of our own people, but he's no child of Abraham to me. How do you think Jesus responded? Think of Zacchaeus. We don't know much about him here in this story. Maybe his conscience was eating at him over a long period of time, and he was ripe for this moment of a turnaround. Maybe over dinner, uh, he has this sense that his life is out of control, his business is out of control, the corruption that he was able to put up with at first has gotten out of control, and he's aware of the damage that he's doing, but he feels tied by the golden handcuffs. Have you ever reflected on your own work and considered the corruption that might be connected to it or compromises you've had to make in the midst of it? And it leads you second-guessing. What am I actually doing with my life as you reflect on it? Maybe Zacchaeus was there. Or maybe like many of us, Zacchaeus was completely disconnected because he was so far removed from the consequences of his actions. See, tax collecting system was really weird. Uh, you'd be in a town in, in the Roman Empire, a province, and there would be a price set for your province of tax that needed to be collected. And there would be bidders on that price. Wealthy people in that town would bid, and they'd say, uh, we'll take that job of tax collection. And they would pay everything to the empire up front, and then it was up to them how they wanted to run the business to collect on that. And of course, as you would imagine, the person who made that bid generally was not associated at all with the collection. They'd hire a chief tax collector like Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, as a chief tax collector, was probably over many people who were charged with going and shaking down those who needed to pay up. You should think a lot more of the mafia when you think of the tax collection business in Jerusalem and beyond. And maybe Zacchaeus was so far removed, maybe he was able to live a life unaffected, which, by the way, is a definition of privilege. If you can go on living your life unaffected by other people's pain, and you can opt in if you so choose, that is the definition of privilege. For those who have the pain screaming at them and they can't ignore it, that's the definition of being stuck. As so many people felt stuck in Jesus' time. So you can imagine Jesus inviting himself over to Zacchaeus, his house, and saying, I'm going to eat with you today. Now, there's an obstacle here. And this is what, when I was reading this story, I was like, wow, this is a character that I never considered. Of course there's Zacchaeus. Of course there's Jesus. Of course they have this conversation and there's this really cool outcome. But there's another character in this story that I've often ignored, and it's the character of the crowds. The crowds are perhaps the main character in this story. The crowds are the critical crowd. And both what Jesus has to say and what Zacchaeus has to say are with them in view. And so we're meant to pay attention to this critical crowd. I've thought a lot about our time, our cultural moment, and reflected on, like, what is it, what's in the air right now that has so much energy and yet is not moving us forward in a helpful way? 
And one of the things that I've, I've noticed is that there is a swell of momentum of criticism that sort of picks up steam in different crowd modes and crowd platforms. Social media, certainly. I mean, can you imagine the Twitter outrage over Jesus inviting this corrupt Zacchaeus to dinner? There would have been many good reasons for this. All the reasons shared with Jesus that we've just heard in a sort of imagined way. Real pain, like real loss, real suffering caused by Zacchaeus. And Jesus sees him in the tree and he says, I'm going to your house today. We're going to talk. Zacchaeus makes haste. This is a response he probably didn't expect. He goes and makes preparations and has Jesus over. And we're not told what happens. We don't know what Jesus said. We don't know how that conversation went down. But somehow Zacchaeus is moved to a point where he is willing to give half of everything he has. Let that just sit for a second. Half of everything he owns to the poor. And on top of that, he makes a promise. If he has been um, corrupt in any of his dealings, he will pay them back fourfold. So if I cheated you out of $5, how am I at math? I'm going to pay you 20 This is a radical commitment that we hear from Zacchaeus. What moved him to that? Was it the outrage of the crowd? Was it the critical crowd that looked down their nose from a place of purity and righteousness at this one who had violated, who had stained himself, who had gone against the sort of orthodox opinion about taxes in Jericho? I think, true to who we see Jesus being in the rest of the Gospels, that Jesus probably just simply told him a story after story, after story, after story. That Jesus became the advocate that we know Jesus to be. The one who heard these stories, the one who was the safe place, the reposit for these stories, who could then take these stories and relay them to Zacchaeus in a way that cut him to the heart. He was moved. Have you ever had a sense of someone that shifted when you got to know their story? Like you had a preconceived idea of how they were or what they were like. And then over a simple conversation, you warmed up to them. You became compassionate toward them. You saw them as more than a violation, more than a bad choice, but a person with a story and with pain and with fear. Jesus doesn't acquit Zacchaeus. Jesus tells Zacchaeus the truth. I mean, you don't, you don't come to a point going, I'm going to sell, I'm going to give half of my stuff away to the poor if no one's telling you the truth. And so I think a lot of the fear from the critical crowd is we've got to keep the fire lit, we've got to keep it hot, we've got to keep the truth white hot and burning. We've got to shine the light on this. But what Jesus embodies and shows us is that we don't only need light, but we also need grace. We need, as we sang earlier, a gracious light. 
present in our lives. Now, I know some of you here are probably quick to light, and you love the light, meaning you're a truth teller, you're a truth seeker, you are a justice champion. And when something's wrong, you want to make it right. Like you have the vision of the black light in the dark, terribly messed up room that when that light comes on, you see all the white specks, all the stuff that doesn't belong. And that is a beautiful gift in many ways. Like we need people who can tell the truth. We need people who can look at a situation, can look at corruption, can look at injustice and say, hey, this is happening. Do you see it? Do you see what's going on right here in front of our eyes? It's happening. But we also need grace. We need the graciousness that says to someone who is defiled, stained, corrupt, a violator, an aggressor, and an oppressor to say, I'm coming to your house for lunch. I'm coming to you. I got some stories. Somehow Jesus was able to tell these stories in a way where the tax collector was open to them. And listen, this is mysterious. I don't put it all on the method. I think if someone doesn't listen to, to the truth, it's not just because you haven't said it the right way or, you know, they police your tone or whatever. I, I think that sometimes people are just hard-hearted and they're not going to listen no matter how it comes to them. And you see Jesus exasperated with people like that. He's like, to the Pharisees, he's like, you, you're like dead men's bones. Like you're in the grave, whitewashed tombs, you know, den of brood of vipers. He thinks of Herod and he says, that fox. There were people that Jesus had just seen such hard-heartedness in through experience. And he's like, this is bad. But here we see Jesus with someone the crowds had no time for, someone the crowds would not have given any ounce of mercy to. He gives him space. And he doesn't just placate him, but he tells the truth. And Zacchaeus has a transformative encounter. Now I wonder for those of you in this room who are maybe a little more oriented to grace, maybe you just have all the patience in the world for people. But you struggle to tell the truth. Like your leniency quotient is so high, but when it comes to saying something hard, it's like it takes every ounce of energy you have to bring it up. And I think this story is so instructive because there are some of us who are really good at truth and we need a little more grace. And there's some of us who are really good at grace and we need a little more truth. And Jesus is seen here, depicted here, as this beautiful expression of gracious light. That's the ecosystem for change. That's the ecosystem where the heart opens up, it expands, it melts. When's the last time you changed because someone shouted you down? Like really change, not just change your behavior so you don't have to meet the consequence or do the PR thing where you like clean up the, the optics, but a real personal inner change. How did it happen? I have to tell you, my own perspective on things has shifted drastically over the eight years of being and living in New York through real conversations. My awareness of issues surrounding poverty, my awareness of issues surrounding race, my awareness of issues surrounding class, 
my awareness of issues surrounding war. All through real conversations with people, not just theory, not just, uh, you know, like a, a back and forth on social media, not just sound bites from a 24-hour news cycle, but real people's stories. And this works in every way. It softens those who bring the light, and yet it softens those who, can, uh, who are receiving the light so that they can hear the light. And when I look at the world today, I think this is missing. I just don't see many great shining examples of this kind of being, this way of being. I often find myself as a pastor, you know, we are a diverse community in a lot of ways. Like we have people from different backgrounds, Christian backgrounds, denominational backgrounds, uh, political backgrounds. And believe it or not, I find myself in this position of, of always asking people to hold the phone and listen to another side of the argument or to consider, or hey, do you know such and such? Oh, you have a problem with that? Do you, do you have any good friends who believe different than you? And it's so often that, that there is very little relational connection with an opposing point of view. And this, to me, is the power and the beauty of a church community. A church community, and Jesus Christ created this ecosystem where people like a tax collector like Levi, who was probably lower on the totem pole, not a chief tax collector, probably someone who just worked the booth as people were traveling through a town. But someone like that, who was seen as a traitor, who was seen as corrupt, could be paired with a zealot who just think the most aggressive person on, on Twitter only with a knife. Like, these two people who hated each other or misunderstood or isolated come together at Jesus' table. Jesus makes space for both of them. Jesus brokers the conversation between the two of them. And later, he opens the door beyond the Jewish community to the Gentiles, and then the church is in this brokering relationship there. They're like, okay, now the inclusion of the Gentiles. Now what? What do we do? The church is like, I don't know. So much of our New Testament exists because of that, that conflict, that heat, that passion, that energy around the difference. This is core to our story. And if we in this kind of moment can lean into that basic essence of our story, I think we'll have good news for our world. Because Jesus knew that God is a God of light, but God is a God of gracious light. On Wednesday night, I was here in this room, and we were practicing uh, silence, and one of the practices we were doing was breath prayer. And so I was like, we had to find a word for God that we would use as we breathed in and breathed out. And I was sitting there, and just for some reason, the, the, the phrase that came to my mind was gracious light. And I, I started inhaling gracious and exhaling light. And I'm somehow through my imagination pictured someone that I uh, am aware of who I perceive as having the hardest of hearts. And somehow the vision of this person sitting was in front of me and all of a sudden they began to weep. A person I know to be hard, a person I know to be callous, a person I know to be characteristically prideful was melting in front of me in my mind's eye as I breathed in gracious light, gracious light. When's the last time you wept with conviction? 
you wept because you considered your ways, you considered your attitude, and somehow you were connected to the pain that it had caused, and you wept. Those are tender, holy, sacred moments, ripe for transformation. And Jesus handles those moments so carefully, so tenderly, like a good shepherd, caring and nurturing people in their tenderness. I think the invitation of this text is for us to ask the question, how do we get to that place, the place where Zacchaeus gets? How do we help others get to that place through listening like Jesus listened and telling stories like Jesus told stories and creating space for that rather than bullet point arguments? When were you last persuaded to change your mind in a meaningful way, politically or spiritually or theologically or interpersonally because someone gave you a great keynote presentation? No. We change our minds because of story. We change our minds because of people. We have so many emotional commitments that we don't see, and somehow through relationship with difference, we begin to see them, and that's holy ground. And so I wonder this morning, as we consider Zacchaeus' story, what that looks like for you. Who do you need to be listening to the way Jesus listened? Who do you need to be sharing stories with who maybe aren't connected with the pain that you have been connected with through other people's stories? And you can play the role of advocate or co-conspirator. Or what was the, what was the word? Who was in the meeting we, dinner we had last night? What was the word? Not advocate, but ally. Was it ally? I think it was co-conspirator. Yeah. But this involves more than just using words, but putting skin in the game, getting messy, getting, putting, putting yourself at risk, willing to take the fall with the people whose stories you're listening to. Where do you sit today? As I close, I want you to imagine your heart. We're preparing to come to the, to the altar for, to receive Eucharist. And this is a place of grace. It's also a place of light. And that's why we confess our sins as we come to it. But that's also why we walk away with great joy and thanksgiving because we know our sins don't define us and they're not the last word on our lives. Somehow that truth that God is unconditionally gracious toward us, that the sun shines and the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Somehow that warms us and opens us like a flower to God's love and to the truth. And so how can you be warmed by God's gracious light this morning as you consider your life and as you come to this table? May God give you grace. Can you imagine what our community would look like if we were known as people of gracious light? Can you imagine what we would look like if we were truth tellers, but we did so in the context of welcome and acceptance and love? May God guide us. May God be our good shepherd as we do this shepherding work. Amen.